Evening, everyone. Welcome to Central Midweek once again. Thank you, Nate, for leading us in worship. Last week, we began a three-part series entitled Practicing a Prolonged Faith. We discovered that two foundations of a prolonged faith are these. First, thinking correctly in a crisis. And secondly, prioritizing patience especially when there are few, if any, signs that God's promises will come true. Now, the key to this, of course, is being sure that what we're waiting for is grounded in what God has said. Now, tonight, from Jeremiah 32, I'm going to explore how we are to step into what God has said. Before we get any further, though, let's refresh ourselves with the text. So if you have a Bible, turn to Jeremiah 32, and let's read verses 6 through 9. Okay, hopefully you got your Bible. This is where we go. Verse 6, Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Hanamel, son of Shalom, your uncle, is going to come to you and say, By my field at Anathoth, because as nearest relative, it is your right and duty to buy it. Verse 8, Then, just as the Lord had said, my cousin Hanamel came to me in the courtyard of the garden and said, Buy my field at Anathoth in the territory of Benjamin, since it is your right to redeem it and possess it. Buy it for yourself. I knew that this was the word of the Lord, so I bought the field at Anathoth from my cousin Hanamel and weighed out for him 17 shekels of silver. So that's the text. Now the big idea tonight is simply this. Practicing a prolonged faith requires us to have sought God wisely. Let me repeat that. Practicing a prolonged faith requires us to have sought God wisely. Now why? Obvious answer in the light of last week's message. If we're ever in a position of having to wait patiently for God's promises, it goes without saying that we need to know that what we're waiting for is actually an appropriate promise. Now, waiting, if we think about it, it isn't easy, is it, at the best of times? I remember when I was in seminary and I used to clean an elementary school for extra money. I used to have to get in there at six in the morning. Now, sometimes I'd ride my bike, but most of the time I would actually take the bus to work. And one day I took the bus to work and uh, as I went to the bus station, I noticed that they changed the seating at the bus station. I was impressed. Brits spending money on public transport? Unheard of, I thought. Anyway, I overheard two men who were sitting on the seats actually talking about the change in seats. And one of them made me rethink my opinion that this was actually a good thing. This is what he said. Why would a bus company want to install comfortable seats in a waiting area? Are they subtly trying to tell us that we'll be waiting a lot longer for the bus from now on? Wouldn't it have been much better, he continued, to invest the money in putting on more buses rather than installing better seats? <laughs> he had a point. None of us like waiting. And the last thing we want to hear in a waiting room, right, is make yourselves more comfortable. Knowing waiting can be challenging. It goes without saying that if we're going to wait... We need to know that what we're waiting for is what God has actually promised. So let me ask you, are you 
or have you been in a situation where you needed to know God's will and all you ever get from the Lord is that inner leading that you can't really be sure of? Have you ever found yourself longing for God to speak to you like he does those heroes in the Bible so that you know what steps you need to take? One of the hardest things to do in a crisis is to discern what God is saying. On the best of days, there are always four voices tugging at our hearts. The first voice is this, the Spirit. The Spirit's job is to take the will of God in the Word of God and to relay that message to the sons and daughters of God. The second voice is the enemy. Now a word on this. The enemy is not omnipresent, which means that he is only at one place at one time. Unlike God, who is omnipresent, who is everywhere. So when I say the enemy, I'm using that term to refer to the enemy and his forces. When someone tells me that they've had conversations with the enemy, I'm actually really tempted to think why they are that important that the enemy would single them out of all of the population in the world. Uh, The third voice that often tugs at us is the world itself. And then finally, there's also our flesh. So the fact that there are at least four voices tugging at our hearts is a tacit acknowledgement that not every inner voice is the voice of God, right? Now add into that mix the kind of pressure we feel during a crisis. And the whole thing about discerning that inner leading becomes a whole lot harder than we often think it is. The problems we have in discerning God's will are many. As I was thinking about this, here's three that I frequently encountered. The first problem or the first challenge I've encountered is this. When we are talking about personal direction, not theological opinion, okay, personal direction, discerning God's will requires an active, dynamic relationship that many of us don't necessarily cultivate as we could. And the fact is, if our relationship with God isn't cultivated, it makes it easier for the chaos in the world to disturb the peace of God that I need to be experiencing in my heart. The second thing is this. Our enemy comes around to us and says, did God really say that? And and so we become uncertain. We doubt what God has said. And someone has said, never doubt in in the dark what God has said in the day. But sometimes we do. Third, we have this tendency to act too quickly on a voice that isn't the voice of God. I know many people who are either spiritually sick or have damaged the faith of others because they have acted impulsively on an inner voice that wasn't the voice of God. I remember back to the time in Wales and the church I was in in Wales uh, had a, a lot of churches together and there were a lot of young people at that point in time. And I knew a couple who decided to get married quite soon after they started dating. This newly smitten couple sensed God leading them uh, that direction. And after a few months, it was clear that the marriage was in trouble. They soon got divorced and each of them asked themselves, how could we have been so deceived? Now, many of you have possibly felt God telling you to do something that somehow went pear-shaped to the extent that you too wondered, why on earth did I do that? When you sense God might be speaking to you through that inner voice or leading, I think what you can do is learn 
from Jeremiah in this text. What we'll discover today is that even prophets had times when God spoke to them in a, in a more general way, as I'll call it. In Jeremiah 32, for example, God seems to speak to Jeremiah in that inner, general leading kind of way. In this passage, it appears as though God revealed his will by means of this impression on Jeremiah's heart or that inner voice that the prophet was conscious of, but not so certain that the prophet immediately knew that it was the Lord himself. Now, this is different from those other times, those other encounters Jeremiah had with God, where God speaks to, seems to speak to the prophet in that unmistakable way. And so the context of verses 6 through 9 reveals to us this, this kind of general leading, I think. So if you have a look at the context of 6 through 9, you'll notice that it's Jeremiah answering King Zedekiah's question in verse 3. Now remember, Zedekiah is the guy who locked Jeremiah in prison. The question addresses why Jeremiah has predicted such a terrible outcome in the battle with Babylon. So the prophet is being asked to justify his actions. The answer he gives, God told me. I wouldn't expect anything else from a prophet, would we? Jeremiah says that God spoke first to him about the offer his cousin would make while Jeremiah was under arrest. Now, what did Jeremiah do about that? Again, go to your Bible, have a look at it. What did, what did Jeremiah do? Remember, he's in prison at this point. Clearly, he didn't do anything with it, did he? He waited patiently. That was his action. Now, look at verse 8. Have a look at verse 8. Verse 8 says, Then, just as the Lord had said, my cousin Hanamel came to me. Stop there. See, there are times when God says something and we need to act, not with a faith that goes out and gets it, but with a cautious faith that waits for the right time. When it is God's time, someone has said, you can't stop it. When it is not God's time, you can't force it. Now look at that last sentence of verse 8. It says this, I knew that this was the word of the Lord. Now the NIV misses the heart of this phrase. Other translations like the King, New King James Version, the English Standard Version, the American Standard Bible, to name but three, and there are many more, don't say I knew so much as then I knew. The NIV is not grammatically incorrect, but missing the word then doesn't support the way the word knew is used. The word knew means this, ascertained by seeing. It means to understand by experience. So let me explain it to you like this. Say you feel led to sell your home and buy a house in a certain neighborhood. The only problem is there aren't any houses available in the neighborhood you want to go to. But then your realtor contacts you and tells you that a house is available in the very neighborhood where you felt led to move. Then you know that this was a word from the Lord. How? You understood by experience. You ascertained by seeing. That's what happens with Jeremiah. In other words, while Jeremiah sensed the Lord speaking to him, he initially moves with caution. 
fully expecting God to confirm this word to him, which God did when his cousin came. Now, by verse 25, the hunch is now the Lord's command. Have a look at this, verse 25. This is what we read here. Verse 25, here we go. And though the city will be given into the hands of the Babylonians, you, sovereign Lord, say to me, buy the field with silver and have the transaction witnessed. You see that? He he waited initially. He moved cautiously. Then it was affirmed. And then later he said, this is what God said. I think for us, what this means is practicing that prolonged faith requires us to seek God wisely. It requires us to be diligent about the inner leadings of the Spirit that aren't always so obvious. It tells us to move forward with caution, but to trust the Lord will fulfill His word. Practicing these steps becomes critically important in those situations when there is a prolonged gap between what God has revealed to us and what God has done. It was 1994. Vipka and I had been married for a few years and we moved uh, from the UK to Germany for me to get my postgrad theology degree done. I just finished the degree, and now was the time for us to step back into ministry. Our plan was going great. Now, there were a number of opportunities that we had, but Vipka and I really sensed the Lord leading us to the United States. That's where we sensed the the call of God. I sensed that because my call to ministry came from the Old Testament book of Ezekiel, chapter 2 and 3, where God clearly impressed on my heart that I would be ministering overseas in the English language. Vipka had come to faith right here in the States. It was her spiritual home. She sensed God telling her that she would marry an English-speaking pastor. She's German, and she thought that would be American, and lo and behold, it was a Brit. Anyway, we had two very clear openings in America, and it seemed that God would be leading us to one of those two. Then out of nowhere, both doors shut unexpectedly. I was stunned. I was disappointed. Then an opportunity came up in London. We checked it out, And on the way home, Vipka, quite literally, cried her eyes out. We knew that London was where we were going to be, and neither of us got it. I didn't know why God would have given me that scripture, affirmed it in so many different ways, only for us now to be led in a completely different direction. So we get to London, and the ministry is great. We developed really good friendships, and there were two couples that we grew especially close to. In one prayer time at the end of a small group, John, a guy who kind of took me under his wing, I would call him uh, someone who I was mentored by, John sensed God telling him to tell me that I would be pastoring a church in America before I was 40. That was shell-shocked. We never told anyone. Have you ever felt led somewhere, by the way, only to have the door closed in your face? Rather than face the frustration, I just kept the disappointment inside. But in that moment, as John spoke, something came alive in me again. It was as if God said, Craig, I haven't forgotten. Now, that was 1988. And it would take church another 10 years for something Vipka and I sensed God saying in 1994 to come to pass. 
That was 14 years after the door was closed. And get this, about 20 years after I sensed God revealing it to me. I know some of you are waiting for God's promises. I heard from a member of our church just this week who has been waiting for a very long time for God to do something. A member of our care team uh, contacted her and uh, just told her to look up an article. This wait for this lady has been uh, very difficult. And, and so that care team member placed that article in her hand and that spoke to her in a profound way and helped her faith be prolonged a little longer. She's been waiting such a long time. The connections with the person who wrote the article and the person who were in our church were incredible. She wrote me an email and told me about it and shared how God had helped her deal with the pain of having to wait so long. See, the key to a prolonged faith is waiting for what you know God has said. Jeremiah's people had to wait 70 years. Vipker and I had to wait 14 years. And then me, 20 years. Some of you are somewhere between those numbers. Some of you may be waiting five weeks. Jeremiah had to wait for a while for the land to become available. Jeremiah's people did. And practicing this prolonged faith requires us to develop what I'm calling the spiritual stature of waiting. So how do we develop that stature of waiting? I want to share three thoughts with you. If we're going to wait and we're going to put practicing a prolonged faith in the context of waiting into practice, here's what we're going to do. Firstly, we need to keep engaging with God's word. Keep engaging with God's word. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, his response to the adversary was that we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. You know what was true for the Son of God as a man has to be true for you and me too. The Spirit of God takes the will of God in the Word of God and reveals it to the sons and daughters of God. That's his job. The reason I felt so led to the U.S. was because of a quiet time I had in my bedroom as a teen. I sat in my bedroom reading the book of Ezekiel, thinking, can any good come out of Ezekiel? As I read Ezekiel 2, the Spirit moved in me in an unmistakable way. It it was as if deep inside something hooked me on that passage and started reeling me in. And as the, as the prophet's call continued in chapter 3, I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that these words would guide me into my future. Verses 4 through 6 have been locked into my brain, never been able to forget them. God says to the prophet, son of man, go now to the people of Israel, speak my words to them. And here we go. You're not being sent to a people of obscure speech and strange language, but to the people of Israel, not to many peoples of obscure speech and strange language whose words you cannot understand. Surely if I had sent them to you to them, they would have listened to you. Now remember, the prophet here has been sent to God's people who are in a different nation. And I just realized in that moment that that was God's call for me. I wouldn't be ministering long term in my homeland, but I would be using my native tongue. And when John shared those words with me that night in London, it was as if God was admonishing me not to give up on what he'd said. 
In times when I'm tempted to, to kind of give up on something, I remember 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 11. It's a powerful text. It tells us that the examples of the heroes in the scriptures and the characters in the Bible were written for our warning, the NIV puts it. These stories in the scriptures are there to warn us, in other words, to give us that proverbial kick up the rear end so we won't quit on what God has said. The word warning can also be translated as admonishment. And admonishment is like a spiritual slap. That London experience revealed a habit that I have that maybe some of you will be able to identify with. When I'm having to wait unnecessarily long for God to do something, I take that disappointment inside and I hang on to it. I've not always been that great at processing disappointment. And one of the blessings and one of the challenges of reading God's word and engaging with it, especially when I'm waiting for God to work, is that it admonishes me. It kicks me up the rear end. Honestly, there have been seasons where I've not liked that. There have been seasons when I've wanted to wallow in my disappointment. And in those seasons, I've often found it easier to avoid the Bible than to engage with it. But I've had to learn that the stature of waiting is fine-tuned when I discipline myself to engage with the Word of God. It is emotionally hard, but it is also so spiritually rewarding. It shakes me out of my slumber, and it causes me to stop living like a victim. Frank, practicing that prolonged faith means engaging with God's Word. Second, practicing a prolonged faith when we're waiting requires us to allow God's peace to rule. Last weekend at our uh, service, as we kicked off that open water series, I talked about how easy it is to allow the chaos in the world to destroy the peace that we experience in our hearts. Now, here's the thing. Vipka and I feeling called to America could not be proven by pointing to a specific verse in the Bible, right? In fact, when we moved from London to Germany to minister in an English language church in a foreign country, it could be said that this fulfilled Ezekiel 3, and it did. And that was one of the reasons I felt so comfortable moving there. Now, a number of my pastoral colleagues also opposed that sense of being led to the States, saying that there were pastors like me in America, and they were a dime a dozen. But in Europe, I was needed more. They had a point, too. But, you know, nothing they said could shift what we sense God saying. We knew Europe wasn't the end for us, and that God was calling us here. After my admonition in London, I had peace to wait for the future. Yet the absence of a specific proof text make it easier for uncertainty to rule, right, rather than peace. And there were times when I would have been tempted to, uh, to kind of think and overthink the whole thing. But the reality is that for you, like me, when it comes to some personal decisions, not all of them can be supported by a specific verse. No Bible verse you could ever point to will tell you whether you should take a particular job, whether you should uproot your family, whether you should marry that person, whether you should attend that college, whether you should buy that house, whether you should sell that car to replenish your savings. 
In all of those situations, God will often lead you by that inner moving of the Spirit, and the stature of waiting is prolonged as you preserve your peace. Colossians 3.15 is important here. This is what it says. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since, as members of one body, you were called to peace. And be thankful. When you are sincerely seeking God for his guidance, he will sometimes lead by filling you with his supernatural peace. So what do you do in those moments when the waiting causes you to push pause on the peace? I think that last phrase of Colossians 3.15 gives us the answer. We're to look around us and we're to express our thankfulness for where God has us right now. I really believe this with all of my heart. A healthy future is always based on a holy discontent. A holy discontent. You see, a holy discontent is different from discontent because a holy discontent is full of thanksgiving. A marker of someone who is at peace with their lot is thanksgiving. While God's will for you tomorrow may be a new job, a new house, or whatever else it's going to be, His will for you today And every day is thanksgiving. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18 says this. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. God couldn't be clearer, could he? His will for us is a life steeped in rejoicing in prayer, and in thanksgiving. But let's be truthful, in seasons like this, aren't these some of the most difficult commands to obey? And don't they become even harder when we're waiting for something else? On this verse, one commentator says this, why does God command us to rejoice always? Because it's more natural for us to grumble and complain about our circumstances than it is for us to see God's character and purposes at work in them. Why does he tell us to pray without ceasing? Because in an age of distraction and entertainment, it's easier to give our focus and our time to nothingness, wasting it on self-centered temporary pleasures than to give ourselves to eternal kingdom matters. And then they conclude, and what about this command to give thanks? We usually forget or refuse to because somewhere deep within our hearts, we fail to remember that everything is a gift from God and we think that we're entitled to what we want and deserve an easy life. I think there's so much truth in that. The reason peace and thanksgiving are coupled together is because thanksgiving allows a person with a strong vision for tomorrow to be a joyful and peaceful companion for others today. There's nothing worse is there than a person with vision for tomorrow who's so driven by that tomorrow that they are at war with everyone today. Such people are a pain to be around because the effort people put in is never going to be good enough. Such people are not sustained by God's peace. They are trying to do the Lord's will the devil's way. 
The Lord's way is not by might, but by his spirit. There's nothing wrong with being driven. But when the drive removes the peace, there's something wrong. So we practice a prolonged faith by engaging with God's word. And we practice this prolonged faith by allowing God's peace to rule when we're waiting. And finally here, we practice that prolonged faith in the waiting by checking our motives. Seeking God wisely requires you and me to constantly discern between our own desires and the Lord's will. We do this by asking, why? Why do I want this? The why gets to the motives that drive our behavior. Now, Scripture teaches that our hearts can either deceive us or lead us. The way I remember this is by remembering the numbers 7 23. Chapter 7, verse 23. So Romans 7, 23 affirms that the heart can deceive us. So in speaking of sin, we read that the sin nature, while subdued, as I talked about on the weekend, Romans can be translate, translates this as annihilated, while it's been subdued, can still influence us. That's Romans 7, 23. Now, Acts 7, 23, on the other hand, is a great example of how the heart can lead us in God's ways. Now, this is what Acts 7, uh, 23 says. This is what we read. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He decided. The word decided is fascinating. It is quite literally an ebi epitinkardian auto. Now, you may not even know Greek, but when you hear the word decided and you hear that gobbledygook on the other part of it, you realize that one word and a concept. So that tells us that this idea of decision is a rich concept. So anibi means to ascend, to climb, to arise. Cardian, you may recognize that one. Cardio, cardian is heart. So Moses decided, Moses' need to visit his people ascended in his heart. In other words, it came from within the depths of his being and climbed up into his heart. Most of us are familiar with Philippians 2.13, which says, For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to, uh, in order to fulfill his good purposes. Okay, God works in you to will and to act. That word will can also be translated as desire. God works in you so that you desire. God is the one who works in us to cause desires to climb up from the depths of our being into our heart. The leading to America for Vipka and I was so strong because the desires climbed independently of one another before we even met one another into our hearts from deep within. Let me ask you this. What desires do you have? I spoke with someone the other day who has this deep desire for their church to plant more churches. That desire is a desire God gives. But God gives so many desires. What desire is God giving you? You see, we develop the stature of waiting by being willing to evaluate the source of our motives. We are people of desire, but is your desire driven by Romans 7.23 or Acts 7.23? 
in a season of waiting, when you are hemmed in, there are going to be lots of decisions that you make and that you need to make about your future. And a prolonged faith requires our decisions to be wise decisions. And a lot of those decisions are going to be driven by this internal leading, not this definitive voice from heaven, not this definitive calling. And since that's true, some closing summarizing comments. First, don't act too quickly and never make a decision under pressure. Don't act too quickly and never make a decision under pressure. Secondly, don't force something. If God's in it, you can't stop it. If God's not in it, you'll never make it work. Jeremiah sensed the Lord leading him to purchase that field, and he was prepared to wait for that to be affirmed. He didn't force. Thirdly, don't hold your disappointment in. It's one of the big lessons I've learned from this. Learn to share both your dreams and your disappointment with others. Don't make spiritual decisions, friends, in a relational vacuum. Again, social distance shouldn't mean isolation. Connect with others. Look for two or three witnesses before you act upon an inner voice and trust that God will confirm that word to you. Now, we'll continue this series next week, but for now, why don't we just stop here and ask God to give us all, again, that prolonged faith. One that is willing to make sure that we are being wise about the decisions that we are making. That we are being wise about those things we're waiting for because we know this is what God has said. Won't you join me in prayer? Our Father, we thank you that when we became your sons and daughters, you gifted us with the Holy Spirit who not only transforms us to become more like Christ, but is someone who is another comforter, is someone who takes your will in your word and reveals it to us. God, for those who are hanging on right now to something that you have said and need that affirmation, may this message be that admonishment that they need. May it be that encouragement and that inspiration for them to hold on. Whether they have been waiting five weeks, 20 years like Vicar and I, or even more than that, like the people in the book of Jeremiah, give them the courage, Father, the stature to wait. And for all of us, I pray, God, that we would recognize that you're a God who delights in leading us into the future you have for us. And as we continue, Father, this, this stay home, stay safe season, won't you just use this season to refine us, to refresh us? Maybe there are people out there, Father, for whom five weeks is now like 50 years and they just want it to end. Father, in this season, give them patience. And in the season of waiting, develop them to become more like Jesus. Father, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.
Just uh, one or two updates here. I've been hearing from Pastor Molly, Central Missions, who's been telling me, I think that we've been distributing about a thousand meals a week. Thank you again for your generosity. It's totally amazing. We were asked to host a blood drive in May, and amazingly, that has already been uh, sold out. And uh, some of you would like to know as well that we've been asked to sponsor a childcare facility, and uh, Debbie on our staff um, has done a great job of connecting with that facility. We've taken a whole host of things over there. It's a special needs childcare center, and Debbie, who oversees our special needs ministry here at Central, has done just a great job on all of our behalf, connecting with them and making sure that we're supporting them. Once again, church, thank you so much for helping us just be the hands and feet of Jesus in different ways, and I just pray that you are continuing to stay safe and to stay healthy. See you all soon. God bless.